0: Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Melissa Sawyer, Global Head of SNC's M&A practice, and with me today is my partner Joe Metellis from our Antitrust practice. Today we're going to talk about the new draft merger guidelines that the DOJ and FTC issued a couple weeks ago. I'm super excited to do this with Joe, given that when he was at DOJ, he actually helped to develop the 2010 horizontal merger guidelines. Those would, to some degree, be replaced by the new guidelines. So first, Joe's going to tell us what the new guidelines say, and he's going to put that into some historical context for us. And then I think he's going to tell us what we should expect in terms of when the new guidelines might go into effect then I'll share some thoughts on what implications the new guidelines might have for M&A deals going forward. So Joe, tell us what we're in for with these new guidelines.
1: Thanks, Melissa. Today I want to focus on two practical consequences of the draft merger guidelines. First, I think that guidelines have decreased transparency about when the government will choose to exercise prosecutorial discretion and choose to block a merger. The new guidelines outline many circumstances that would potentially raise competitive concern that would not have raised concerns under the guidelines that prevailed under prior Democratic and Republican administrations over the last 40 years. On top of that, the draft guidelines also include an express reaffirmation of all non-overruled Supreme Court decisions, some of which involve scenarios that would seem to any reasonable person to clearly pose no realistic harm to competition. Take, for example, the Supreme Court's decision in Vons Grocery, which blocked the merger of two grocery stores that collectively had about 8% of the market, as defined by the government in that case. The DOJ and the FTC cannot possibly challenge all the mergers that they say are suspect in the draft guidelines. They don't have enough staff, and more importantly, I don't think that they actually believe that every merger that they identify as potentially suspect in the draft guidelines truly poses a threat to competition, especially insofar as they are trying to indicate agreement with old Supreme Court decisions the DOJ and FTC are simply not going to be challenging every deal, resulting in an 8% market share. And that leads to the difficult question of what mergers will the DOJ and FTC focus their enforcement efforts on. To me, the new discussion in the draft guidelines about so-called dominant firms, firms with more than a 30% market share, is a good clue about their actual enforcement priorities. The 1982 and 1984 merger guidelines included a so-called dominant firm proviso, signaling concern about any deal involving a firm with more than 35% share for a horizontal transaction. That proviso was dropped in the 1992 guidelines and not picked up in the 2010 guidelines either. By bringing back this concern about the mere size of a party – and expanding it beyond mere horizontal transactions. I think the FTC and DOJ have signaled that one of their real concerns is with the largest firms in the country getting bigger. That's not at all surprising, given the many interviews and speeches of FTC Chair Kahn and the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division, Jonathan Cantor, saying as much. So the second big issue I'd like to focus on has to do with litigation. For many years, courts have largely accepted the merger guidelines as principled explanations of when a merger does or does not threaten harm to competition. Courts have treated each new version of the guidelines, for the most part, as an incremental improvement on a generally agreed-upon structure that spanned different administrations. I'll note that implicit in that judicial reliance is judicial recognition that old Supreme Court precedent does not actually provide sound guidance in many instances. So it will be very important to watch what the courts do with the new guidelines, which are very obviously a break from the prevailing tradition. My view is that by jettisoning the consensus framework of the prior iterations of the guidelines, the government has actually made it harder for the government to win cases by opening the door to arguments that the guidelines are no longer principled explanations of when mergers actually harm customers, but rather are an inherently political document that should largely be ignored by the courts. President Biden's call for new guidelines in his executive order two years ago makes these kinds of arguments inevitable, in my view. And that's going to make the job of the government harder by requiring them to defend even legitimacy of the guidelines. So in a strange way, it's possible to see the guidelines as a benefit for the business community, or at least those who are willing to go through the pain of litigation.
0: So, Joe, maybe I'll build on that and talk a little bit about how I think the guidelines are going to impact M&A deals going forward. And for me, the most important takeaway is that parties to M&A deals are going to have to do even more advanced planning around the potential antitrust issues that arise in their transactions. And I think this is particularly true for anyone thinking about making a hostile bid or a topping bid, because they're going to have to present the target with a very clear plan to obtain their antitrust clearances in a timely fashion. Serial acquirers or people who do a lot of acquisitions are also going to have to evaluate whether they are dominant players because they may face challenges to transactions that otherwise don't present obvious overlaps. I think all parties, both buyers and sellers, are going to have to spend a lot more time negotiating antitrust risk allocation concepts and acquisition agreements. And in some cases, they may want to prioritize those negotiations, maybe even do that at the same time they're developing a handshake on value in the deal. And before they tackle other issues in the contract or bring a lot of people under the tent to execute on the deal, just to make sure they have a meeting of the minds on these risk allocation points before they expand the circle too much and generate too much leak risk on the transaction. Other antitrust risk allocation provisions include things like reverse break fees. We've already seen a big uptick in the use of reverse break fees by strategics from about 12% a decade ago to about 30% today, and that number is still climbing. The negotiations over hell or high water clauses or efforts clauses and all the provisions that address control of regulatory timing and process are also going to be important as well as things like interim operating covenants that restrict target companies from taking certain actions between signing and closing. If we foresee more challenges to mergers and potentially more litigation, it could take longer to close deals. And then target companies are going to have to live with those interim operating restrictions for longer. So they may want to think about things like whether crossing over a comp cycle or an audit cycle changes their view on how much flexibility they may need while they're waiting for the deal to be completed. Lastly, and unfortunately, as you said, parties also need to be prepared for litigation challenges. And that means that the deal team may want to have a litigation mindset and think about litigation strategy, not just negotiating strategy. They're going to have to think about things like document production and privilege issues early on in the deal process and be careful about what documents they create in connection with the deal. So a lot to think about and a lot to emerge over the next few months. Thanks for listening to S&C Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sullcrom.com.